welcome back guys this week's episode took forever i put so much work into it so much research i am exhausted but it is a story that i really really enjoyed working on um it was a lot but it was very very interesting um i haven't really been up to much lately wintertime is in full swing in new york and if you know me at all you know that i absolutely despise wintertime i hate being cold i hate snow i hate ice i hate winter clothes i am ready for summer even spring at this point um i booked tickets home to ireland next month for st patrick's day which i'm really excited about having at home for st patrick's day in the whole 10 years that i've lived here um i just need some fresh air some beach walks my mom's home cup dinners lots of cups of tea playing with my little nephew who is just growing like crazy he's walking now um last time i saw him in August he was still just starting to crawl so it's gonna be crazy seeing him walking um I just love a break away from city life every now and again so I'm so excited about that um I left some links in the episode bio to an article that was published um this week on rte.ie alongside a documentary episode on RTE investigates uh, about domestic abuse in Ireland particularly I think uh, during the whole pandemic period I haven't watched the documentary yet but it had great reviews online this week so anyone in Ireland who hasn't watched it yet please check it out also I believe you can watch RT player here too I know I always watch it here too but I have an account with them I'm pretty sure you can watch that so if you're in America or anywhere else and you're interested in watching that I have the link in the bio um, I'll make some notes when I watch it I need a little break uh, before I watch it so I'll probably watch it in the next week or so just because I've been my head has been so in this story um so I'll make some notes and I'll discuss it on my next episode hopefully um so guys this one is a long and harrowing story it's probably very triggering also there is a lot of violence in this one um so be prepared grab a coffee or whatever it is and prepare yourself for the story of Tina Turner So Tina Turner was born Anna Mae Bullock on November 26, 1939 in Nutbush, Tennessee in a hospital basement that was reserved only for black patients. She grew up in a four bedroom house on a farm where her father Richard worked as a supervisor of the farm workers for the white owners. He was also a deacon of the Woodlawn Baptist Church. He and his wife Zelma were in constant conflict. Zelma was a black Indian woman and anything but a homebody. She'd been smoking and shooting guns since the age of 10 and was not a woman to be messed with. Her and Richard's fights were a dominant feature of the household. Anna Mae had one older sister, Aline, and they were allies in the turbulent household. Across the pasture was the white Poindexter household. They treated Anna Mae and Aline like their own kin, counselling them in the way of white people and fashion and would have them over for snacks and much later TV. Despite the structures, strictures of segregation, there was a genuine amity between the two families. Anna Mae caught glimpses of some things which were missing in her own home, such as affection and commitment. In her own home, she felt like she barely existed. She felt tolerated rather than loved. 
She was unfortunate to have been an unwanted child in a marriage which was failing. She took to roaming around the farm in search of strength in solitude. But she was never a child who despaired even when she was in pain. She knew it would eventually pass. She said, The fact is, I had no love for my mother or my father from the beginning, but I survived. She didn't know what was going on at the time, but years later she discovered her mother had taken her father away from another woman out of spite and they had never really loved each other. Her mother wasn't mean to her, but she wasn't warm or close the way she was with her sister Aline. Tina said, she just didn't want me, but she was my mother and I loved her. So she became accustomed to being alone. She had to go out into the world and become strong. As she got older, she said she became aware of sex before she ever became aware of love, but she never associated the two together. She said she always saw white people being affectionate and loving to each other and felt there was something romantic about their love, but she never saw that in the black community. Among the black people she did see, she was only aware that love was sexual and that there was something sneaky about it, as they would always sneak off together to do it. She wanted the kissing and the affection that she saw that white couples had. When she was 11, her mother left. She moved to St. Louis to live with her aunt. Anna Mae said that when she realised how much she both loved and hated her mother and how close love and hate can be. Her father Richard remarried quickly to a woman named Essie who also had a daughter named Nettie. Essie didn't take any nonsense. When Richard would start beating her, she stabbed him. They didn't stay married for very long and Tina believed this was because Richard was scared of her. After some time, Richard also left both of his daughters. After her parents left, they never had any contact with them. Tina began working for a white family, the Hendersons. She says that they saved her life. She would take care of their baby and help out around the house. She wasn't just a maid, she was a part of their life and even lived there. The Hendersons really loved and cared for each other and that's when Anime's feelings toward marriage began to change and she realised she would like that someday too. When she was 16, her mother came back into her life and wanted her to live with her in St. Louis along with her sister who was already there. Aline worked as a barmaid at a local club and would rave about the hottest band in town, the Kings of Rhythm, led by a guitarist named Ike Turner. They were as big as the Beatles, but have a reputation of being pretty rough. And for a 16-year-old girl, it was a big no-no to be in these clubs with them. Tina says, Ike, Ike walked in the room and you could feel it somehow, but he wasn't her type. She even thought, God, he's ugly but there was something about him. And when he got on stage and picked up a guitar, the whole club would be rocking. She said she almost went into a trance just watching him. Ike Luster Turner was born in 1931 in Clarksdale, Mississippi. He was the son of a Baptist minister and raised mainly by his mother. One of his earliest memories is his father being beaten by a bunch of white kids right outside their house. He'd apparently been having relations with the girlfriend of one of the group. The White Hospital wouldn't take him, so the health department set up a tent outside the house. He lay there for three years before he died. Ike was told continuously in the studio that he was a great musician, but they didn't see him as a singer. The band had some success, but not enough for Ike. He married a pianist named Bonnie Turner, but it was very brief. One day when he was cleaning his ear with one of her bobby pins, she accidentally bumped his arm, causing the pin to go all the way in and partially deafen him. He returned to his hometown and began recording in a makeshift studio of his own. Ike paid Tina no notice at first. 
Tina says she was very skinny and the fashion among black women at the time was to be big in the hips and legs so nobody paid attention to her but she was dying to get on stage. One night she took her opportunity. The mic was passed to her sister Aline in the crowd. She was dating one of the band members at the time but had no interest in singing. So Tina grabbed the mic and sang. Ike was blown away. He brought her on stage and started playing songs she knew and could sing to. The women in the crowd were very supportive of her. As she said, because she was so thin, they could see she was of no threat to them and so they cheered her on. But then her mother found out. She said she was too young to be going to a club and hit her so hard she got a nosebleed. No one wanted their daughters involved in anything to do with Ike Turner because he had a reputation for fighting. But Annie said she knew she was a good girl and she didn't deserve to be hit like that. That's when she realised just how much she resented her mother. She left her when she was 10 and now she was just going to start playing mother to her. So no more singing until one day Ike himself turned up at the house. He was dressed nice and was polite and so Annie's mother was completely won over. He promised her nothing would ever happen to her and he would take care of her. He wanted to take her on tour to a college and to have her sing with him locally every weekend also. Her mother agreed. So here you can see already how Ike has begun manipulating, starting by manipulating Tina's mother. From then on, Tina and Ike were like brother and sister. He bought her clothes. He was always taking care of people. He had to make you become his to own you. And here again, we see the first signs of control. Ike lost it for the big time and thought Annie Mae would be the one to take him there. Annie's voice was different. A woman doing that kind of thing back then was a big no-no. Things started to explode for them, but things remained platonic between them. He was seeing a woman called Lorraine and she had begun dating Raymond Hill, Ike's old friend. At 18, Tina became pregnant. She moved in with him and they talked about marriage, but soon he was gone. Then Lorraine got suspicious. She thought the baby was Ike's. She even threatened Annie with a gun one night. Then she went into the bathroom and shot herself in the chest. Fortunately, she survived. In August 1958, Annie gave birth to a boy she called Raymond Craig. She moved to a small apartment of her own. Not long after, Ike had a son with Lorraine called Ike Jr. Annie had to take on two jobs to take care of her son Craig. Ike would constantly fall out with the singers in his band. So eventually, Annie became the lead singer and moved into Ike's house. She didn't know it at the time, but this was the beginning of Ike moving in on her. In 1958, she recorded her first record with Ike and the boys. Tina said in the very beginning, they were just like brother and sister. She wasn't his type and he wasn't hers, but they communicated through music. They became very close. They used to go out to clubs to meet people, but never really for fun. It was always business with Ike. They were so close that sometimes Tina would even go and sleep in the same bed as Ike and Lorraine. Not in a sexual way, they were just that close. Tina said, Ike made me feel important and I don't think there is anything I might have wanted at that time that Ike wouldn't have given me. And that kind of confidence was a foundation for me. For the first time in my life, a kind of family love. We were like brother and sister from another lifetime. Here again, you can see what I've spoken about before, what they call the Prince Charming effect. He just became everything to her and provided her with everything. And this is something that abusers tend to do. They become, like I say, your Prince Charming, your perfect man. And here you can really see that coming into play. 
I broke up with Lorraine for a while and one night while they were driving to a show, I tried to touch Tina. She felt awful. She thought he was her friend and that he would never try to do something like that to her. Then one night at the house, she went into Ike's room because one of the other musicians had threatened to come to her room that night. Why are men like this? Why? Why? She slept there, but the next morning, Ike made a move. She was thinking, I can't do this. This is awful. But she went ahead and did it. And from there, it just went on and on. She said she fell in love with him. He was a different person at that time, kind of shy and didn't drink or take drugs. She said she would have been lost in her life at that point without him. Another sign of being taken in by an abuser. They make you feel like your life is basically nothing without them in it and you won't have anything without them. While Tina was loyal to Ike, she was often appalled by his behaviour. There was a story that he had robbed a bank to buy uniforms for the Kings of Rhythm. In January 1960, she got pregnant. At the same time, Ike had decided to get back together with Lorraine, who he had since fathered a second child with called Michael. He still continued to see Tina. She, however, moved out of the house as she was depressed by the situation. She rented a house of her own and found a woman to take care of Craig. Ike was signed and released his song A Fool in Love with Tina on vocals, but this time with the stage name Tina Turner. She had reservations about the name change. She also had reservations about her situation with Ike. The pregnancy, the relationship, his womanizing and violent temper, but she wanted to sing. She wondered, could he ever change? She doubted it, but she knew how long he'd wanted to hit record and she vowed not to desert him. Tina said, we were two, two totally different people. I knew it could never work out between us. So when he got the record deal, I went to talk to him. First, he told me how it was going to be from then on. He would pay my rent, but basically keep all the money for himself. I told him I didn't want to get involved, with in, involved any further with him. And that was the first time he beat me up with a shoe stretcher with the metal rods in the middle of it. Just grabbed one of those and started beating me with it. And after that, he made me go to bed and he had sex with me. My eye was all swollen. God, it was awful. And that was the beginning. The beginning of Ike instilling fear in me. He kept control of me with fear. Why didn't I leave him? It's easy now to say I should have. But look at my situation then. I already had one child and I was pregnant with another by him. Singing with Ike was how I made my living and I was living better than I ever had in my life. What was I going to do? Run back to Barnes Hospital and try to get my job back as a nurse's aide? No. I was hurt and I was scared, but I couldn't think about going back. I had to keep going forward. So I decided to stay with Ike because I really did care about him. And I knew the story of how he had tried to get his career going for so long and how every time he get a foothold, people would walk out on him. And I swore I would not do that to him. So I said to myself, I'll stay right here and I'll just try to make things better. I wasn't as smart then as I am now, but whoever is. I think this is such an important statement that she makes. Um, I can say that I've had every thought that she says here in my head during my abusive relationship. I remember all of the sob stories my ex would tell me about his mother and how cruel she was to him growing up, how all of his past girlfriends treated him terribly and... I remember vowing to never do anything like that to him, despite knowing that the, that type of behavior just wasn't in my personality anyway. I was completely manipulated by him. I thought I could change the behavior, that, oh, he'll get better when life gets better. I knew I couldn't leave, firstly, because I didn't want to, and secondly, because I had no money and I had nowhere to go. Also, want to um, 
comment on what she says here and it's something that she brings up quite a lot and says it in this way also where she says that he would beat her up and then have sex with her um that's how she says it because that's her memory of it of course but just me wanting to make it very clear that that is not just have sex with her that is rape he would rape her after beating her obviously she wasn't consenting and just because they were a couple at the time it is still rape and I just want to make that really really clear a fool in love became the hit Ike hoped he would have but then Tina developed hepatitis from a mosquito bite she was extremely ill and couldn't leave the hospital Ike was freaking out but not out of concern for Tina but rather that she couldn't perform and there was no one who could replace her one day he came to see her at the hospital and said you've got to get out of here she was showing improvements but the doctors didn't want her to leave as she may still be contagious Ike said she had to sneak out so she did he sent someone to pick her up later on he always had someone else to do his dirty work for him the next day he said they were to go on tour and remember also she is still pregnant here the tour and single were a huge success and then Ike brought on the backup singers he named the Ikeettes. They had finally hit the big time. In October, Tina gave birth to Ronald, a baby boy who everyone, Lorraine included, noticed looked like Ike. Tina said it was a shameful period for her. Up until then, Lorraine hadn't known what was going on, but fans out on tour always assumed Ike and Tina were married, especially given she was pregnant. But Lorraine assumed fans just misunderstood the situation. He was also carrying on with one of the Iquettes, but back then he kept that kind of thing from Tina. After the baby came, Lorraine left Ike. So eventually, Tina and Ike got all of the kids and started living together. Five days after giving birth, Ike had her out on the road again. She was really weak. She said she bled a lot when she hit the high notes. After that, he gave her two weeks to recover. Around this time, she also had her hair bleached, which caused it to fall out, and so then started her legendary look with her wigs. In the year that followed, Tina began to realise how unhappy she was. She had achieved some success, but it was constant hard work. It never stopped. On the road, to the studio, to the stage. She also hated the records because the keys were too high and Ike always had her screaming on them. But it was her relationship with Ike that made her the most unhappy. She said, At first, I had really been in love with him. Look what he'd done for me. But he was totally unpredictable. You'd hear this sound and you'd look up and he'd be sitting there drumming his nails on the table staring at you kind of muttering you're screwing around with me like that for no reason and then you knew you were going to get it you just never knew when out of nowhere he would lean up from the couch and walk right up to you and pow and you'd go what did I do what's wrong pow again it was insane it got to be that I always had a black eye and a busted lip that was the basic beat up he would beat me with shoes shoe trees anything that was handy and then he would have sex with me it was torture, plain and simple. I always had a cut on my head somewhere, always had bruises. And on top of that, there was the mental torture. We'd be in the back of the car and he'd suddenly look at me and say, what's the matter with you? And I'd freeze. Oh, nothing. But I'd have to be sweet then. And I'd be sitting there wondering if he was going to hit me and when, waiting for it. And he'd be saying, what's in your fucking mind? You're trying to fuck with me. And finally, bam, bam. And then one pow and the shoe would come off and there I was. And then he would be fine as if nothing happened. And later I'd be on stage trying to sing through these swollen and cut lips. He could be so mean. One time he made me eat a whole pound cake. 
We'd stopped outside a store somewhere and sent somebody inside to get some food. They came back and this pound cake with this pound cake and said I'd ordered it. I said, no, I didn't. Ike said, well, you're going to eat it. And I had to sit there and eat the whole thing while he watched. He just completely humiliated her. So in that first year of touring, fear moved into our relationship and it never left. I was a loner again, all on my own. The fighting got worse when we moved to Los Angeles. Ike was so desperate for another hit, he just got crazier and crazier. And that's when I started thinking about the life I was living and how unhappy I was. One time early on, I was dumb enough to tell Ike how I felt. Still thought he was my friend. Wrong. Pow. After that, I kept my feelings to myself. I didn't complain. The kids, all four of them, were still back in St. Louis. So we rented a place and we just continued working. That was our life. I didn't say anything, not out loud. But deep down inside, I started telling myself, I am not going to be with Ike for very long. I am not. I am not. So there's a lot to unpack there in what she says between the fear, the control, the walking on eggshells, trying to be sweet and nice when she felt his mood was changing. All of us as survivors have been there and there is nothing like it. For me, even reading that whole statement just instills this horrible anxiety in me. It just takes me right back. Um, And you know, it's that thing of like, knowing that it's gonna happen but not knowing when it's going to happen. And then him knowing that she knows that he's going to hit her and attack her, but that she doesn't know when. And then him just getting so much gratification from that power and control over her. Around 1961, they began to fade from the charts. Ike's abilities as a composer had limits and that was clear. Tina was already beginning to find these limits stifling. Without her... Without her voice, his records would be far less interesting. Ike decided to marry Tina, a strategy which always had proved effective in the past whenever he required the prolonged services of a useful woman. Tina said, One night, Ike said, do you want to marry me? This is during one of those intimate, mushy-mushy moments, and I said, yeah. By then it was always yeah, because if you said no to Ike, you were going to get beat up a few days later. I knew that I didn't want to marry him. I didn't want to be part of his life. Didn't want to be another one of the 500 women he had around him by then. But I was scared. And by now, this was my life. Where else could I go? We drove into Tijuana looking for a justice of the peace in order to marry us. It was dusty and dirty. And all I remember is this guy pushing this paper over to me across the table and me signing it. And I thought, this is my wedding. I was now Mrs. Ike Turner or whatever. Ike bought them a house. On the inside, Tina was very enthusiastic, unenthusiastic about it. She wasn't happy. The non-stop touring continued. Wherever he played, I kept an eye peeled for useful people, preferably women. Among the first of his West Coast liaisons was Gloria Garcia. Ike was smitten. Before long, he had also set his sights on Anne Thomas. She would ultimately outlast Garcia and even Tina in his obsessions. There were many others, of course. Ike himself said he had at least 100 girlfriends during his time with Tina. Tina said sometimes she would see him fooling around with one of the Iquettes or that he would pick up women in the audience and then send Tina home early. He started renting party rooms at their hotels just for him and the band and the women they would pick up. Tina was never allowed in there. She was jealous and hurt but could never say anything because she knew what he would do. He would go out shopping and come back with furs and diamonds but then a little while later Tina would see one of the Iquettes or the other woman in the same thing he just bought for her. She was now beginning to realise he would never change, that she'd never be enough for him. No woman could. 
One of the most useful women Ike discovered was Anne Kane. There's a lot of Anne's in the story, just so you know. He knew she was a good prospect for cheap recruitment. He had her look after the four kids, now aged three to five, and the kids were a challenge. Ike and Tina were always gone, so they had become spoiled. One used to wet his bed because of emotional problems. They didn't know how to eat, they didn't have manners, they didn't have etiquette. Anne taught them all the things they didn't know. They didn't like her, but they respected her. Ike thought then that she would be an even greater asset as a manager of Sputnik, the booking agency he ran out of the house. He set up living quarters for her at the house. She was so good that he soon began taking her on the road too. She therefore became a witness to the true nature of Ike and Tina's relationship. Anne said nobody should treat another human being the way Ike treated Tina. He was so horrible. One time in Dallas, I saw him stick a lit cigarette up her nose and he would beat her with clothes hangers too for no reason. Ike would get mad at anything. Another time in Georgia, I think, some girl he had been fooling around with made him mad. So when he came off stage, he went to take it out on Tina. I could hear him beating her up in her dressing room and I went in the room just as the fight ended. Tina was covered in blood and Ike had fractured her ribs. But Tina stayed. She stayed because of the children. When they did photo sessions, Tina would have to use makeup to cover up the bruises from his beatings. It was that bad. Nevertheless, Anne Kane too came under Ike's spell. Tina became aware of this during Anne's first road trip with them. Anne had gotten a little too bold and was riding with him in the car while Tina had to ride in the bus with the band. Then she turned up one day wearing a shirt saying his and the next time Tina saw her, she beat her up. Tina said that Anne was really after Ike. Of all the women he had, Anne was the first who openly tried to take him. She almost took over the house cooking for him and all and it really started to get on Tina's nerves. But there was nothing she could do because if she said anything, she would get beaten up by Ike. In late 1964, Ron hired Rhonda, a white woman, as their housekeeper. Anne Kane said, I really hated Rhonda then because I realised this is the new one, you know? It was a natural jealousy, but Ike had told me about his obsession to have this white woman, to take her everywhere and show the white man something. And when he first laid her, he said he pinched himself to see if it was really true. This black guy from Mississippi with this young white girl. Before long, Rhonda was also touring with them. She says her intimate involvement with Ike was a big mistake. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. A lot of it was by force too. You either did it or you got hit. I remember one time I was talking on the phone and he came in and started cursing and he took the receiver and cracked me on the head with it. I've still got a scar there. You lived in such fear, you know. You wanted to get out, but you were afraid to, just like Tina. And if somebody did leave, I could always track them down. Then it was, oh well, I'm sorry. And everything was supposed to be okay, erased. And you shouldn't want to leave anymore. It was rejection, I think. Ike just couldn't handle rejection. I guess you have to remember too that he was born and raised in the South and things are totally different down there. I remember in the poor black communities that I saw there seemed to be a lot of wife beating in those days. We were in Mississippi once and I saw this guy beat this girl to smithereens with a lead pipe. I mean, she was a bloody mess. We tried to bring her inside, but she said, no, no, leave me alone. He'll get mad. He'll get mad. The next night we were playing the same club and there they were back again, arm in arm. It was around this time that Ike began to take interest in drugs. Tina said there were some great times back then, but she never knew when Ike would turn on you, so she felt trapped. She never took to drink or drugs, as she thought others would do to cope with the situation. But Ike did used to give her Ben's dream when they were recording for long periods, and her voice would get hoarse. She would then sing over the hoarseness, and the next day her voice would be gone. But she had to sing, sore throat or not, so she knew she would have to take the pills. 
Meanwhile, the Ikettes had become popular in their own right and eventually walked away from Ike. In summer 1965, Ike got a call from Phil Spector who wanted to make a record with Tina. They recorded River Deep Mountain High together at his house. Ike was not allowed to be there. He just wanted Tina. She liked that and for the first time felt like a professional. She loved the song because for the first time she was singing a song with structure and melody, unlike Ike's music. Spectre just wanted her to sing the song in her own voice, unlike Ike who had her screaming through each track. He liked her natural voice and said it was unusual and he had never heard a woman's voice like that. This must have been very validating for Tina. You know, her talents were being applauded and confirmed by a successful songwriter, unlike Ike who used her basically as a machine and never gave her her flowers. The song wasn't very successful, but she still felt really good about it and proud. It showed people what she had in her. However, it did do very well in the UK charts and George Harrison from the Beatles called it a perfect record from start to finish. The band was about to go on tour with the Rolling Stones. At this point, Ike had gotten a new backup band together after the Ikeettes had departed. Maxine, one of the new members, said, Ike was kind of hard to get along with. He had a problem with finding people for every little thing. Like if your shoes weren't clean or there was a snap missing on your dress, he'd walk up to you on stage while you were singing and say, I'm finding you $10 for that snap on your dress. By the time we got back to LA, I owed him money. But he never bothered me sexually. I think Pat Arnold, another member, was his target. So Tina wanted her fired, said she was singing flat on stage. Well, we decided since we'd all come in together, if Pat was going to be fired, then we'd all leave together. But then, the night that none of us were supposed to arrive for work, Pat was the only one who showed up. Tina had started becoming increasingly annoyed by Ike's infidelity. She started to fall out of love with him. She told him to just never bring anyone into their bed. But then she found out he had been seeing Gloria Garcia. She was shocked when she saw her picture because she was so beautiful. She thought she didn't stand a chance against her. She was studying the picture of her and noticed the chair in the background was in her house. She found out from one of the kids that Gloria had been living there while Tina was on a mini tour without Ike. And she had been sleeping in her bed. She was so hurt and decided, I don't want this man anymore. Anne Thomas was another infidelity. I told you, so many Anne's. Tina said she was very pretty and very nice. She couldn't sing, yet Ike had made her an Iquette. After she started letting go of her love for him, Tina became friends with Anne. All of his girlfriends had in fact become her friends over the years because they were all in the same position she had been in, falling in love with Ike. Tina said, besides, who else did I have? There was no life outside of the house and the studio and the road. I couldn't even go to a movie on my own. If I had to go to the market or something, I'd have to tell him first and he still might come and check up on me. So by this time, I was real unhappy. I didn't care about anything. On the road, I'd just go to the job and then afterwards go back to the hotel and go to bed. I was miserable. While on tour with the Stones, they had one fight one night in London. Tina said it was a bad one. Ike really kept me down and gave me a good whamming and the next day I was all swollen. That's when Vicky, a woman she had gotten to know who worked at a TV station, started feeling sorry for her. Vicky had a lady that read cards. She sneaked her off to see her. The woman told her, you will be among the biggest of stars and your partner will fall away like a leaf from a tree. She also saw something about the number six. She felt really good about the star part, but felt a little guilty about what she said about Ike. She said, but that's how I was then. Sometimes Ike would beat me up and he'd get so crazy that afterwards I'd feel sorry for him. Can you imagine? I was all mixed up. 
She kept holding on after what the card reader had told her and she kept seeing other readers everywhere they visited. She knew her time would come and someday she would be free of this life she was leading. Now, I know some of you may scoff at that whole card reading thing and how seriously she took it, but I can completely get where she's coming from. Whether you believe in card readers or not, what she was getting from this was hope. Hope that there was an end to the situation she was in. And when you're in a bad place like that, you cling on to anything that puts you in the frame of mind to believe that there is an end to it. For me, whenever I'm in a bad place mentally, I have two books that I reread all the time, which are focused on manifesting and positive thinking. And I swear it changes my thinking right away. They just kind of make me hopeful that I won't always feel like this and remind me that the bad times don't last forever because every time I've read them, I'm going through something and by the time I'm reading them again, that thing that I was going through is nothing now. And it shifts your way of thinking. So you're just naturally pulling yourself out of the bad thoughts without even realizing. So I completely get and understand her doing this. They had no hits in 1967, but Ike was becoming increasingly aware of Tina's popularity versus his. He was a background man by his own admission, but he didn't want Tina's popularity to turn her away from him. He carried on with his usual ways, not realising he was reaching the limits of her tolerance. Tina said one day he sent her to the market and she felt it was a very strange request. She knew something was up. So she did her errand really quickly and came back quietly. She went to their bedroom and there was Ike and Anne. She just totted and went to another part of the house. She told him later that Anne could no longer stay there and Ike bought her an apartment over the hill from them. One day Tina came home and Anne was in the house acting as if nothing had happened. Tina was furious and got a hammer and said she was going to kill her. The only thing that stopped her was her shoes. They kept making her slip on the floor. Then Ike came home and brought it up, broke it up. She said Ike had no shame and the women liked him because he was always buying them expensive gifts. Sometimes she would even see him flirting with the other musicians' wives. She heard that when the wives were on the road, he would send them to a hotel room, but the musician husbands would think that they had gone home. Then Tina started seeing things like this with her own eyes, not just hearing stories. You know, sometimes we just need solid proof from our own eyes to really believe something is happening. Ike at this point is also getting bolder, almost flaunting it in front of her. Um... It kind of reminds me of how my abuser, you know, for the first few years, he only really used to abuse me when he was drunk, but then it eventually started spilling over to when he was sober too. Tina said the life she was living was just awful. Here I was trapped in this sadistic little cult, totally ashamed and totally without hope, it seemed. Finally, I caught Anna and Ike in the living room and I just gave up. I knew it would never end. I was miserable by then. So tired of it all. So totally unhappy. I remember this point in my relationship also. It just got to that point where I knew nothing I said, nothing I did was going to help matters. And I was just completely exhausted. So I just kind of gave up and sat back and just took the abuse. Tina had tried to leave Ike a few years earlier. There was a week she wanted and he wouldn't buy it for her but she, he had gone and bought something for one of the Iquettes. She was so hurt that she went and bought the wig for herself. This wasn't easy for her as Ike would never let her have her own money. He would spend money on her, but never let her have her own. Clear example of 
financial abuse and also a way of ensuring that she could never leave him. She had once asked him for $5 a week and he wouldn't even give her that. So she'd gotten good at sneaking money out of this huge wad of cash he always carried with him. She used to slip a few bills out from the middle of the roll so he wouldn't notice. Uh, This is something that I always used to do. Um, At this point, he had taken pretty much all of my money and I just kind of wanted to have some emergency cash for things like food or if I ever needed a cab um, without, you know, having to ask him for it because he loved having me ask for it. So she got the money and bought her wig. She didn't think he'd care, but he beat her up for it. That was the first time she left him. She borrowed money from the Iquettes and her sister and got the bus to St. Louis to her mother. But Ike tracked down the bus. She says, I was asleep in my seat and I heard this noise. Somebody was tapping on the window. I sat up and there he was. I had to get off the bus and go back with him. And boy, I remember that was the first time I got it with the wire hangers. He said I was trying to ruin his life and that I was just like everybody else. All the other guys had left him. And when we got back to our room, he beat me with this wire hanger all twisted up. That was the beginning of those. It was like a horror movie with no intermissions. One day, a new group of musicians came to the house and when Tina saw Johnny Williams, she was instantly attracted. She thought that Ike must have known that there was a spark between them because it was obvious. She was excited to have someone on the road with them that she actually liked. Nothing ever happened between them, but it became known that she had feelings for him. When Ike realised, he started picking fights with her about it and she received more beatings, but she didn't care. She felt like Johnny had been sent to her from God to give her something to live for. He started giving her back some of her self-confidence, always telling her she looked beautiful, even in front of other people. Although she felt very much in love with him, she just wasn't the type to fool around. But one time she was alone with him and she just fell into his arms. She said they just sat there looking at each other and giggling, but nothing happened and she was scared of Ike finding her, so went back to her room. But she said that one embrace alone kept her going for years. One night, her and Ike had a really big fight and she came to work with her face puffed out, her lip cut and her eyes swollen almost shut. Johnny cried right in front of her and Ike when he saw her and he walked off the stage. After that, he gave his notice and said he wouldn't work for anyone like Ike. So this for me is kind of where I get annoyed at the bystanders. As much as I was in denial back then, I also just wanted somebody to acknowledge what was happening to me. And a lot of people I knew then saw it with their own eyes, but just kind of kept their heads down and said nothing. Johnny here chose to walk away, but he could have done something. He could have spoke to Tina about it, tried to help her get out of it, anything. I know that times were different then, but I still think he was a little selfish to just walk away from what was obviously happening. Tina says that things had started to get even worse around then because the drugs had started with Ike. The cocaine made the violence even worse. Everything came on faster. Getting mad, fighting, impatience. Everyone was scared to say even a word to him, never knowing how he would react. She said, if I thought he was bad before, the cocaine started making him evil. In England for a tour in 1968, Tina received what she felt was the ultimate humiliation. It involved Anne Thomas. Tina and Anne were like twins, according to Anne Kane. Again, so many Anne's here, try not to get them mixed up. When they got to London for the tour, they both found out they were pregnant. And of course, both were by Ike. Tina said to Anne, if you want it, you have it, but I'm not having another one for him. So she terminated the pregnancy. 
Tina said when she found out about Anne's pregnancy, she lost all feeling for him as her husband. She wished that he would marry Anne and then they could become like the brother and sister they used to be, just strictly business. But he had to have both. He would always have Anne in the room right next to his and Tina's. He didn't even try to hide it anymore. One time he even got out of bed with Tina and walked through the connecting doors to Anne's room, had sex with her and then came back to bed with Tina. She said, what made it even harder was that Anne and I were the closest of friends, always sitting up and talking and laughing. All we had was each other. Ike would never fly first class as he felt it cost too much money. So the three of them would fly economy. He would book three seats together. He would sit each woman on either side of him and he would stretch out and go to sleep with his head in Anne's lap and his feet on Tina's every time they flew. And that would be how they had to sit there for the whole flight. Anne used to get beatings too. No one involved with Ike ever had an easy life. Anne, like Tina, was afraid to say anything, but Tina was getting to the point where she started to talk back. She was tired of being scared and hit and tortured, tired of everything. I remember getting to this point too. I had gone through the crying and the upset, then went to the exhaustion, then went to just ignoring it while it was happening, just hoping it would stop. And then I got to the point where, like Tina, I just didn't care anymore. I didn't care what he said. I didn't care what he did. I would even taunt and antagonize him further, which I think shocked him. You just, you get to that point where you just kind of give up caring. One time they were driving to a hotel on tour when a guy passing them in a Ferrari looked in and saw Anne in the back seat. He was clearly attracted. When they got to the hotel, the man had found out where they were staying and left a message for Anne at the front desk. Later that night, Tina was awoken by an awful noise and someone screaming, ow, over and over again. She knocked on Anne's door, but she wasn't there. She kept listening and the screams were scaring her. Then she realised it was Anne and she got mad. She knew Anne hadn't done anything wrong. She opened her own door and saw one of the girls in the hallway. She explained to her that the guy in the Ferrari had showed up at Ike's party room looking for Anne. So uh, Anne, <clears throat> excuse me, so Ike went and got her. He threatened to take her to the room and strip her naked in front of the guy. Then he dragged her out of her room half naked and he had her on the exit stairs and he was beating her up. Tina went to find her and she was crying and beat up and embarrassed. She said, Ike, you should be ashamed. And right then, Tina thought he did feel ashamed because he realised everybody could hear what he was doing to her. But she then thought it was more embarrassment than shame because with him, shame didn't, shame didn't often enter things. I think I agree with what she's saying here. Um, I don't think that an abuser is ever ashamed of what they're doing because they really don't see it as wrong. But I think if they knew that somebody else outside of the relationship could see what they were doing, they would be embarrassed because they always want the outside world to think that they're perfect, basically. Anne Kane, meanwhile, had had enough as soon as she knew Anne Thomas was pregnant. She said in the years she'd been with him, he had never beat her because he knew she was the type of person that would have him in jail if he ever beat on her. Now, I don't agree with this at all, what she's saying here, because while I don't think that every abuser abuses every partner in the same way, I do believe that every woman is susceptible to abuse whether you think you are or not and that is one of my major triggers when other women say to me well I would never let that happen to me or I would kill a guy who treated me like that etc etc it's just not helpful and it's not true and it kind of stops you from 
telling more people your story because you're just thinking, oh, it's my fault because I let him do that to me. And this person is saying they would never let someone do that to me. And that's just not how it works. But one evening they were at a restaurant and Ike said something Anne didn't like. So she got up and walked out. She knew she had really pissed him off and he was going to come up after her. And he did. He had an acoustic guitar with him, got her corners in the bathroom and started swinging it at her and hitting her with it. She had her arms over her head trying to protect herself and he broke the guitar over her elbow. Then he got really mad saying she had broken his guitar. She thought to herself, this man is changing. This man is crazy. So there you go again. She thought that Ike had never beat her because he knew that she was tough. But he did it. So that just goes to show what I was saying earlier. And I don't blame her for those comments. Um, Not everybody is, you know, as kind of... I don't want to say educated about it, but, you know, they just don't realise what they're saying, I guess. At this point, Tina was becoming a familiar, battered face at local hospitals. One emergency room nurse named Nathan remembered her well from those days. She would come in in pretty bad shape, all beat up and bruised, face swollen, bloody noses, hematoma and the eyes, all puffed out in black. One time she was brought in by a limo, in a limo by a chauffeur. I would just clean her wounds and wait for the doctors to examine her. She would never be admitted except this one time when I took care of her on an overdose. With an overdose, you have to be admitted. Tina said, I finally got to the point where I was ready to die. Ike was beating me with phones, with shoes, with hangers, choking me, punching me. It wasn't just slapping anymore. One time right before a show, he punched me in the face and broke my jaw and I had to go on and sing anyway with the blood gushing in my mouth. I felt like I could not take any more. I mean, can you just imagine that? She planned what she was going to do. She told her family doctor she wasn't sleeping and she needed strong pills. He gave her a bottle of 50 of the strongest volumes there were. That night before the show, she remembers looking around and thinking, goodbye, I'm leaving you guys with it all. She went to the bathroom and took all 50 pills and then they left. Rhonda Graham noticed something was wrong. Tina was putting eyeliner on and it was running all the way down her cheekbone. She was slurring her words. She said she took some sleeping pills. She thought if she could just make it on stage and collapse on the stage that Ike would still get his money for the show. She knew there was something in the contract that said if the group didn't go on stage, on stage they wouldn't get paid. But if they went on and she got sick, then they would have to be paid. Ike had clearly instilled this in her head to never cost it money. I came in and got mad and tried to make her throw up. He said they had to take her to the hospital. He was slapping her and sticking his fingers down her throat. They pumped her stomach at the hospital, but she kept on saying she wanted to die. They couldn't get a pulse at one point. The doctor thought she was gone and told Ike. Ike said, let me talk to her. And he went in and talked to her and they eventually got a pulse. Later, they joked that Ike must have said, you better not die or I'll kill you. That's how insanely afraid of him she was. Eventually, she started coming around and thought at first that she must be in heaven. Then she saw Ike sitting there and thought, well, this sure ain't heaven. She said, oh no, out loud. Ike said, you motherfucker, you tried to ruin my life. She couldn't believe she was still alive and still having to hear this stuff. As soon as she got out of hospital, Ike made her go right back to work. Her stomach still wasn't right, but he didn't care. She was hurting so bad on stage and when she came off, she was coughing and throwing up. She didn't even make it back to her dressing room. Ike said to her, it serves you right. You want to die, then die. And that's when she really started to hate Ike Turner. 
and when the rest of the people around him, all the girlfriends and the Iquettes and the secretaries, started wondering just what kind of guy they were involved with. By 1969, she'd given up any thoughts that he would improve. Their relationship at this point was strictly business, but business hadn't been all that good. But in May that year, they had hit with I've been loving you too long. Then Tina became aware of the Beatles and heard Proud Mary and she started singing white rock and roll songs. She loved it. By 1970, they were having great success again, but then Tina got a cold and it turned into bronchitis. Her doctor told her to stop working. Ig said, forget it. So she kept on working and then it turned into pneumonia. Then one night she was on stage with really bad fever and she looked out into the audience and couldn't see anything and thought, God, I'm really sick. But she kept going with that fever for two weeks. One night she woke up and told Ike she had to go to the hospital. He didn't want her to go, but must have realised she would die if she didn't get treatment because he let her eventually. But she had to drive herself. The hospital admitted her and she got worse and worse. She was told she had tuberculosis. She had so many things wrong with her and she had been travelling and performing throughout all of this. She woke up one morning to the room full of flowers. One of the bunches was from Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. She said this made her so happy and she began to think about who she was and to feel like who she was. The other flowers were for friends and fans and she started thinking about the fact that people really cared about her. But no flowers from Ike, of course. She came home after a few weeks to find that Ike had had their house completely remodelled. She said it looked like a bordello in hell. She took one look at it and said, God... Ike was so upset at her reaction but couldn't fight with her because she was still very sick. So he just left, which was the only time that ever happened. Tina was soon back on the road again, buoyed by antibiotics, and the pace was brutal. At one point, Sammy Davis Jr. bought her a white jag. It was a high point for Tina because now she could leave the hotel at night sometimes and go for a little drive. It was a little bit of freedom for her. I remember this feeling for me when I got my first real job for an actual company in the city. Um, it was a couple of years after I moved to New York. Before that, I'd been working down the block in my neighborhood as a babysitter. So this is my first bit of full on freedom where I had my own time and space and co-workers. I only had a few short five hour shifts a week, but oh my God, I used to look forward to them so much. I would even be sad sometimes when my shifts were done and wished I could stay on longer. It was just the freedom and the space to feel like myself a little bit again. After they had released Proud Mary and it became a success, Ike had his own studio built in the house with a separate apartment where he could party. He was in total control. He installed a closed circuit TV system to monitor every part of the house. There were several pistols on the premises, one right by the phone and a machine gun which had been a gift stowed under the control board. Tina could be summoned whenever her presence was required to lay down vocals. The calls could come any time of the day or night. I could cocaine to keep him going and felt he had no need for rest. When he had the studio built, Tina thought, great, I'll be rid of him. But then the phone call started. It could be three o'clock in the morning. Ike wants you. And she'd have to get up and drive down there and sing, or sometimes just to bring them food. She started drinking coffee to stay awake. She said she would get there and they'd all be walking around with that white stuff all over their faces, rocking back and forth. They looked so silly, but they thought they were so cool. He would always be on her case about not singing the songs right. She'd be standing there crying, trying to sing the way he wanted, but it was never right. She was singing out of fear, not out of enjoyment. Her son Ronnie said that sometimes his mother would take him down to the studio so she would have an excuse not to stay there all night. He was the youngest and him and Tina were very close. He knew how unhappy she was. His father was so unpredictable, he said. You never knew what kind of mood he'd be in. 
You'd have to try to figure out how many days he'd been recording. After three or four days, he'd be real irritable. Then he might stay up another two nights and then he was liable to get mad if he didn't like the way your eye twitched. So basically the whole entire family were on eggshells with him. At this time, Anne Thomas was back on the scene again. She used to hide these walking canes that Ike had because he would use them to beat her or the secretaries with. He even broke her arm once. There was nothing both of them could do about their situations. They would just try to laugh about it, to laugh about the fact that they were prisoners. By 1972, the Turner's days of chart stardom was coming to an end. It had been more than 20 years since Ike had made his first record and as Tina said, he never changed his show and he never changed his style. But the times had very much changed. For one thing, there was a new feminism in the air and much talk of women's liberation. But Tina didn't really get it. She couldn't relate to the movement. She said that they were talking about liberation from things like housework, but that was the least of her problems. Her problem was simply survival. Ike was so desperate for a hit that she was doing everything she could to help him, but it was never enough. He was in a bad mood one day and looked at her and said, what do you do for me? She said, you must be blind, just like that. She was starting to talk back to him. At first, he hardly even noticed. Tina was now 34 years old. She said, I think when a woman reaches those mid-30s, her thinking starts to change. I know mine did. I started thinking about this career I had, about how when I first started out, I thought it would be such a glamorous life. But there was nothing glamorous about it. It wasn't even my career, it was Ike's career. And it was Ike's songs mostly, and they were always about Ike's life, and I had to sing them. I was just his tool. Then I started thinking about my marriage, and I remember what marriage had meant to me as a little girl. The loving husband and wife, the happy children. My God, I thought, how had things gone so wrong? The kids would all run and hide when I came home. The man was so mean. He had his own problems too, of course. He was getting older and taking the waste, and I know he was worried about his nose. The cocaine was starting to eat through the tissue between his nostrils. But he wouldn't stop taking the stuff. He got so crazy with that scene in the studio that me and the kids couldn't even celebrate the holidays anymore. At Christmas, it was like, don't buy me any motherfucking presents. You'd be wrapping gifts in the bedroom and he'd come in and kick them all over the floor. So this is my life and I was starting to see it real clearly now. Now, listening to her story, you may hear that she has said a similar line to this several times now. Like, now I was starting to really see clearly. Now I was starting to really see clearly. But that really is how it goes. You think you're seeing things clearly finally, but then something else happens and things escalate and escalate. So you really do go through different stages of how you see things. Then one day, Ike brought a woman home to meet Tina, which he would often do. Her name was Valerie Bishop. Ike hired her as a secretary. She started to teach Tina about a Buddhist practice called chanting. She listened to the chanting and said something inside her went bing. She knew it was something that had been given to her. Valerie gave her a book and some beads and taught her the chant. Whenever Ike wasn't around, she would start testing it. She was really excited about it. The first thing she said that happened was this. She had been using some makeup, which had been giving her a rash. She'd been trying to find this other brand to use, but it was sold out everywhere. But then right after chanting, a lady from Bloomingdale's called her and said it was available and on sale. She said she knew it sounded silly, but she just knew it was the chanting. It was helping her to rearrange her place in the universe. It was a small thing, but it was a start. And again, you may laugh at this, but I kind of understand again what she's saying. I'm a big believer in the power of positive thinking and manifestation. Sorry about that. There is an ambulance riding past. Okay, the sounds of New York. Um, And I believe this is a similar kind of a practice to positive thinking and manifesting. 
again, even if you don't believe in that kind of thing, if you just practice gratefulness and positive thinking, it really shifts your mindset and the positive thoughts put you in such a good place and just give you such hope. So that alone makes it work. She said she could feel the power stirring up in her after all these years. The chanting scared Ike and he could clearly see Tina was getting more powerful. Her mindset was shifting. She then got a part in a movie in which there was no space for Ike to be a part of. Her part was small, but it was her part and it gave her strength. She could feel herself growing. Ike was spending all of his time in the studio now. This was fine with Tina as long as she didn't have to participate. It was now his time at home that she was dreading. She said it was really hard then and he got worse and worse. She never knew what she was getting hit for. He'd just say she was messing with him. He'd lock the door and then she knew she was going to get it. One night he threw boiling hot coffee in her face because she wasn't singing the way he wanted. She wasn't trying. She said when the coffee hit her, it felt like ice and then it started burning and she started screaming. She grabbed her neck where most of it had hit and the skin peeled right off. She had third degree burns in her face. This scared Ike, but he started beating her. Like he was blaming her for making him throw the coffee at her. She had tried talking to him and telling him how she felt. She started writing him letters because she wanted him to understand that she just couldn't take the beatings anymore. I also used to do this. I used to write letters when different things would happen and I would leave them in random places around the house hoping that he would find them and listen. But that was his whole life. He would beat you and have sex with you and argue and fight and then go play his music. And she didn't even like his music. So she would write letters and leave them where he would find them. But then two days later, she'd have a black eye again. Her left eye pretty much stayed black and her nose was always swollen. He'd also beat the secretaries and Anne Thomas. He'd be calling Rhonda foul foul names while she was driving and pulling handfuls of her hair out. It was like when he got angry, he became anger itself and he wouldn't let any of his women go, even if he wasn't interested in them anymore and they couldn't mess around with other men. If he even thought that they were going to get beat up and he... Ev- mm, sorry. If he even thought that they were messing with other guys, they would get beat up and probably screwed. He was an evil, possessed person. Tina said it got to where if she even rolled away from him in bed and he woke up and noticed, he would start punching her in her sleep. And in the morning, she wasn't allowed out of bed until he woke up. She had to just lie there while he slept. It was like living in hell's domain, she said. After the movie came out, the press were constantly asking questions about Tina, not Ike. From then on, he used that fact whenever he wanted to fight with her. He'd also bring up River Deep and how that was a hit without him. But they were both deals that he had negotiated and she guessed that had made him even madder. In 1975, Baby Get It On became the last chart single I and Tina would ever have together. The hits were at an end for them, as was Tina's patience. The kids would soon be grown and that had been her main reason for sticking around. She was chanting more than ever, which is making her grow stronger and come into her own. She had begun to see her life in sevens. From birth to seven was childhood. From seven to 14 was school years. 14 to 21 was first love. 21 to 28 was falling in love with Ike. 28 to 35, she'd finally come to hate him. Now on the verge of 36, she felt there was a huge transition happening. The end of one thing and the beginning of another. All the years of fear had finally left her fearless. That was when she started leaving him again. The first time she went to her cousin's house for three days, he found out and she had to go back and he beat her. He picked up an iron poker from the fireplace and she thought he was going to hit her with it. By then she'd had every type of injury, broken ribs, broken jaw, 
This would have been another blow to the head and the blood would come and the pain and she just didn't even care. But he didn't hit her with it, just held it in front of her face and bent it just to show what he could do. Then she left again, this time for almost two weeks and she even took the kids with her. She thought this time it scared him a little. When she did go back, he didn't even fight with her, he just listened. She said she really couldn't stay with him any longer. She didn't want his money, but for him to just leave her alone. She couldn't take the beating anymore. I remember getting to this point also, and on the very last day that I was with him, I just remember saying over and over, just leave me alone, just leave me alone. I just wanted him away from me and nothing else. After that, the fights were fewer, but of course he still continued to beat her and sometimes pretty badly, but not as often. She thought he was frightened because he had never heard her talk like that to him before. Anne Kane said that Ike had once told her he had plotted her death and how he was going to murder her. He was going to run over her body over and over until he smashed her guts. He used to sit up and think of how he'd do stuff to people. That's the kind of mind that he had. In 1975, on tour, the crowds had begun to be very scarce and Ike was putting the blame on Tina as usual. She felt hopeless. She still didn't know where she could go if she were to leave him. Her mother lives lived in Ike's house in St. Louis and her sister was too scared of him but she was determined she was going somewhere. Her determination was outweighing her fear. What did she have to lose? So they got in the limo to go to the airport. Ike was eating chocolate and Tina was wearing a white YSL suit. He handed her some chocolate and it was all melting and she said ick and he hit her. This time she got mad and from there everything she'd been holding in for the last 16 years started coming out. Again, I remember this all too well. The last day I was with my abuser, he made one comment, no worse than what he'd ever said to me before, and I just lost it. And everything I'd kept inside for years just came pouring out in me, just absolutely wrecking the apartment. So they got on board the plane and Ike wanted the usual arrangement with him in between Tina and Anne and lying across them both. But Tina told him she just didn't feel like it and he kicked her and she just looked at him and he looked at her with daggers in his eyes and he started getting really mad and she started nudging him back. The plane landed and they were walking out the gate and Ike was just staring at her with real evil in his eyes. They got in the car and Ike hit her a backhander and she started fighting back. He kept hitting her, but she didn't cry once. She was instead cursing him out. He was saying, fuck you and everything else. And she was just talking right back at him. He was amazed. He was punching her and saying, you son of a bitch, you never talk to me like this. She said, that's right, but I am now. Then he took off his shoe and beat her with that too. But she kept on fighting him. She didn't care what he did because she was flying. She knew she was gone. By the time they got to the Hilton, the left side of her face was swollen out past her ear and blood was everywhere, running out of her mouth and splattered all over her white suit. Ike used the usual story of saying they had had a car accident. She thought that Ike knew it was coming to an end also, but he was just too tired to deal with it right then. They went to their room and she heard him mumble something like, Lord have mercy. He went to lie down and Tina started to act like nothing had happened because she didn't want him to know what she was about to do. She asked if she could get him anything. She started massaging him as usual and she was scared that he would hear her heart beating so fast because she knew then that it was time to walk. He soon started snoring. She slowly took her hands away from him to see if he really was asleep. She looked at him and thought, you've just beat me up for the last time, you sucker. Then she got up, put a cape over her bloody clothes, didn't even put her wig on because her head was too swollen, put on a pair of sunglasses, grabbed a small bit of hand luggage and was gone. 
She had to be really careful because she didn't want any of his people seeing her in the lobby. She ended up sneaking out of the back of the hotel. She was running by then. She was so scared. She ran into the alley and hid herself among some trash cans. After a few minutes, she composed herself. It was getting dark around 9pm when they should have been about to go on stage. She knew everybody would be looking for her. She started running down the alley again and ended up on a freeway, which she ran across and into a Ramada Inn. All she had with her was a mobile credit card and 36 cents. She asked to see the manager and she told him, I'm Tina Turner. I've had a fight with my husband. As you can see, will you give me a room? I can't pay you right now, but I promise that I will. And the manager said he would. He took her upstairs and gave her the best suite he had. He even put security on the door. He could tell from the state of her that this was serious. He asked her if she wanted food, but she couldn't eat anything solid because of the condition of her face, so he brought some soup and crackers. She said, I was blessed to find that man. I'll tell you, blessed. I love this story and I love that this man helped her out. It might seem to you like it would be the right thing to do and the obvious thing to do, but you would be surprised at how hard it can be sometimes to find kindness like that when you're a victim of abuse. People can judge or be scared to get involved with what they believe to be a personal and private matter. But I believe that domestic abuse is everyone's issue. After the manager left, she took off her bloodied suit, washed it and put it on the heater to dry. She was thinking of what to do next, but her painful head wasn't up to thinking. She didn't really have any friends she could call. Finally, she called Mel Johnson, which turned out to be a mistake. Mel was a friend of Ike's from the St. Louis days, and now he was a Cadillac salesman in LA. The minute she hung up, she just knew he was going to call Ike and tell him he'd heard from her. Then she called Ike's attorney, Nate, an older man who was very nice and knew what the situation was between her and Ike. He said he knew some people in that part of Texas who would pick her up the next day and give her some money and take her to the airport where we could have a ticket to LA waiting for her. The next morning, she cleaned up and put on a ton of makeup and dark glasses and was looking a little better. She got on her plane and thought, phew. But then when they landed, her heart started pounding again. She thought, what if Ike has gotten home before me? Suppose he's waiting for me. She kept thinking of the time he had found her on the bus to St. Louis and she was really getting scared because she didn't underestimate him for a minute. Then she thought, well, if he's there, then I'm just going to scream and yell until the police come because there's no way I'm going back to him again. By the time the plane landed, she was ready for anything. If he wasn't waiting for her, she figured she'd be okay because without the wig, no one would recognize her. So when she got off, she started running across the tarmac toward the cab. Safe, she thought. And then the driver turned around and the first thing he said was, are you Tina Turner? She thought, oh shit. She spent 4th of July weekend at Nate's family house. He asked her what she wanted to do. She said there was no way she was going back and she had to get a divorce. So after about a week, Nate called Ike and Ike right away started threatening him and his family. He got scared and Tina felt bad and went back to her friend Maria's. But her and Maria realised she couldn't stay there for long because Ike would come looking for her. So she moved around for two months working as a housekeeper for each family she stayed with. The only way she had to pay them back. Before ending up back at Maria's sister Anna's house who had decided she was going to help Tina through this. These kinds of people are so, so important throughout this time. I had nothing when I left and I had nowhere to go. And I really realised who my friends were throughout this. A lot of them checked in every now and again but they never offered to actually help in any way um only of two of my friends actually really helped me out 
She slept in whatever corners of the house that she could. She said she didn't miss the trappings of stardom at all because she finally had her freedom and her own friends after 16 years. I remember this feeling so well. I found a complete shithole of an apartment for about a month um, after, right after I left, as in a couple of days after, which um, I shared with this woman who was lovely, but she was a hoarder and she had the fattest cat I've ever seen in my life. And the cat would just poop and vomit everywhere. And she would, she worked night, she was a bartender and then would like be sleeping most of the day. So like a lot of the times this would just be out in the open all over the floor all day. And she would also keep open tins of cat food in the fridge, which just used to make me want to vomit. The place is just nasty. She had so much stuff in the apartment that my tiny bedroom was full of her crap, but I didn't even care. I had a bed little tiny bed and I had my laptop and I'd be so happy with just that one spot I didn't even use the kitchen or the living area I just used to get takeout every night and snacks and just sit on that bed and watch TV it was crappy but it was mine and nobody was there to interrupt me and abuse me so it was just such a huge sense of freedom she had asked her son's girlfriend to sneak into her house and get her some clothes and her gun and head wraps so no one would recognise her if they saw her out Anna asked her to go to the market for her. They were in the car when a guy pulled up to them on the passenger side trying to get a look at her. She ducked down but she knew right away that I could send this guy to look for her. When they got to the market she saw the guy again and this time he definitely saw that it was her. That night someone knocked on the front door and Tina went and got her gun. She didn't open the door but could see it was Robbie, an ex I kept. Robbie said through the door that I had gotten him and Tina's mom and sister to get a private investigator to find her. When he found her, he sent Robbie, along with Ike and his friends hiding in the bushes, to knock on the door. Robbie told Tina that Ike just wanted to talk to her. Tina had figured out what was going on right away. Ike knew that Tina liked Robbie and thought he could get him to talk to her, to talk her out of the house. Since she had left, she hadn't spoken to anyone on that side of her life because she knew the control that Ike had over them. Tina kept quiet and Anna started pretending she was a maid who couldn't speak English. Tina looked out of the window and could see the Rolls Royce with Ike alongside it and three or four other cars parked behind them, filled with a bunch of lowlife guys in every car. Tina called the police. They told Ike it was a private property and he had to leave, which he did. Ike called Anna's sister to call Tina and tell her that he wanted to talk to her on the phone, which she did. He wanted to know if he would meet with her. She did because, as she said, she was really strong by then and Ike knew it too. She sat in his car with him and she said she could see the fear in him. She was now her own person and he had never dealt with her on that level. He saw that he had no control over her anymore. They didn't talk about much. He drove her back to Anna's and said goodbye. Ike Jr. said that back at the house, Ike brooded and raged over Tina's departure. He stayed up for 14 days straight and started doing more drugs. Ike Jr. was trying to stick with him, but one night he beat him in the head with a 45 for no reason. He never told anybody, but he had to go to the hospital and the police were informed. He said he didn't want to press charges because even the police couldn't protect him from Mike. All of the tour dates had to be cancelled and then the promoter started filing lawsuits. Ike just went into his studio and locked the door, ignoring it. Two days after their meeting, Ike sent all of the children to live with Tina. Tina felt she could no longer impose on Anna. Ike gave her money to rent a small house. She said it was a strategy. He gave her just about enough to rent one month in the house and figured she'd have to start working again for him for the next month's rent. But Tina was smart. She called Rhonda Graham to help establish some semblance of her career. Tina had suddenly found herself legally liable for reimbursing all of the promoters and core papers were pouring in. 
Her name is now muddied with the promoters. She found herself at 37, having to start at the bottom. Rhonda started booking her into every TV show she could. She had to use a pseudonym to make the bookings because I could started putting out threats to anybody who helped Tina. She was on food stamps. Between checks, they would charge things on Rhonda's credit card. They went to Las Vegas one time to see our Margaret show and in her dressing room, the phone rang. It was Ike looking for Tina. He'd even managed to track her down there. Tina realised Ike was never going to let her go easily. She hired Arthur Lees as her legal counsel. He was startled by the state of her suit. She was entitled to half of their property, but Tina knew to haggle with Ike would be to be attached to him for as long as he could stall the process. So the only thing she told Arthur that she wanted was her freedom. This was my situation at the time also, but I too wanted nothing. I just wanted to be left alone with the little that I had. Her divorce petition asked for $4,000 a month in alimony and $1,000 a month in child support, along with continued custody of her own son, Craig, and legal custody of Ronnie, her son with Ike. Tina was doubtful, but Arthur was determined, which did not endear him to Ike. I called Arthur that motherfucking Leeds. He did not like him because he couldn't scare him away. Ike would raise all kinds of hell during their meetings, but Arthur would talk right back to him. Finally, they went to court. Tina was prepared to give everything away if she had to, and when the judge found this out, he called her and Arthur into his chambers. He said, young lady, are you sure? She said, I'm positive, judge. In a meeting with Ike and Mike Stewart, the head of United Artists, about their recording contract, Tina said she told Ike that she was never coming back to live with him. She wasn't going to record with him, perform with him, or anything else either, ever. And that's when the trouble started. After Rhonda began working with Tina again, her house was set on fire twice. Then the windows were blown out with a shotgun while she was out. Tina told her to come and stay with her and the kids. Then one night they heard all of these gunshots out front. They all hit the floor and then called the police. When they went to look, all of the windows in her car had been blown out. They all slept on the floor that night. One night a policeman came to the door. He said he had heard that Ike had hired a good man to take her to the ballpark, as he put it. But he was never arrested and Tina never wanted him arrested. She just started travelling with a gun. Then she got stopped for running a red light and the traffic cops spotted the pistol in her bag. When they took her to the station to book her and found out who she was, they kept the gun but let her go because they all knew who Ike Turner was and what he could do. So, when people ask, why didn't you just leave? This. This is why. Because it doesn't just end when you leave. You are still in danger and it is not as easy as it looks. They don't just let you go when you leave. They keep on coming after you. For me, it took at least two years for him to stop. And that's because I made it very, 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 very hard for him. Eventually, Mike Stewart became her manager, despite her knowing that I could keep an eye on her this way. But she had started performing again. She had her own band and it was a dream come true for her. She got standing ovations for the first time in her life. She felt that finally she was doing something right and she was the one who was making it happen. Arthur Leeds had taken steps to find out just how much Ike's property was worth and to ensure that he wouldn't sell it. He was also looking into his other assets like his four publishing companies and his cars. Ike was deeply reluctant to part with any possessions. His phone calls to Tina showed that, but Tina needed money now and didn't care about anything else. She called BMI, the song licensing organisation that collected royalties for her and Ike's material, and asked for an advance on several songs she had written. She then used this money to relocate, but it didn't take long for the secret location to be found. 
One night her son Craig and his girlfriend Bernadette were staying over. They heard gunfire. Bernadette's car was on fire and the back of the window of Tina's car had been blown out with a shotgun and someone had also fired into the house. They called the police and they sent over a SWAT team to pick the pellets out. By this time, the cops were getting really interested in Ike. This did it for Tina. Ike had everything she had worked for and it wasn't fair, but no amount of money was worth this. She just gave up. The divorce did drag on for a while longer though. He constantly butted heads with Arthur and went through five lawyers of his own. Tina continued touring to pay off her debts. The kids had become rebellious after everything. Tina knew she was losing control of them by being absent for so long, but she had to work. Eventually, she called her old housekeeper and manager, Anne Kane. She knew she was the only person who could handle her boys. She said she couldn't afford to pay her, but if she did this one day, she would pay her because she knew one day she would be back up there again. Anne agreed. Ike was claiming that by Tina divorcing him, she was taking away the principal asset of their marriage, the goodwill inherent in the entity of Ike and Tina Turner. He valued this loss at $750,000. Arthur valued Tina's furs and jewellery, still with Ike, at $100,000, but Ike said they were worth $500,000. He put the worth of the apartment complex between two hundred and four hundred thousand, dollars but Arthur suspected it was closer to a million. And on the studio, he placed a value of $200,000. But Tina was done with it and told Arthur to throw in the towel. She walked out with what was on her back, essentially, but she said, my life's more important. The divorce was sealed by November 1977, but not finalised until March 1978. Tina in the interim had hired bodyguards and began considering what to do about the kids. Craig and Ike Jr. would soon be 20, Michael 19 and Ronnie 18. The time had come for them to decide what they wanted to do in life. Ike Jr. wanted to work in the business and began working as Tina's sound engineer for her stage show. When Ike found out, he was angered. Ike Jr. said he was caught between the two of them and it really messed it up for him. Ike was just trying to harass Tina in any way he could. Ike Jr. had been doing great with her, but then Ike told her he wouldn't let him work for her anymore. She said fine because she couldn't allow him to creep back into her life again. One day when she arrived at the airport to go to her next show, Ike was waiting there. He was standing with two of his musicians wearing a white suit and a red shirt, looking ridiculous, as Tina said. He was there to check up on Ike Jr., he said, but Tina said he was no longer with her. He walked up to her bodyguard and said, let me just tell you something. You just make sure I don't ever see your fat ass nowhere. Do you understand that? And the bodyguard was actually scared of him. The poor guy had thought he had been hired to deal with screaming fans, not this situation. Tina had a difficult decision as she knew Ike was trying to use the boys as pawns, but she had to focus on her own life and career. She became estranged a little bit from the boys, apart from Craig, because they loved the studio and they loved Ike's lifestyle with the cars and the women. They needed to find out for themselves what that life was really like. Tina already knew. She couldn't support their habits and their laziness. They would have to adjust to a new way of living if they wanted to stay with her. It wasn't simply a matter of being strict with them. It was a matter of her survival. Tina's career eventually started taking off again. Then she started facing new challenges in her personal life. She wondered about dating again, but didn't want to get stuck back in the same lifestyle. Another man hadn't touched her in over 16 years, but although she had had a bad relationship, it didn't change her feelings about men. She started thinking a lot about equality between men and women. She couldn't believe that women were not considered equal to men, but thought that couples should find their own balance of equality. She didn't rush into relationships because she could see from several men that they were not willing to work on themselves to achieve an equal balance. She felt that a man should hold his ground while still respecting his woman and her strengths as a woman. She would allow them to be a man if they allowed her to be a woman. It all came back to equality. 
Tina met her now husband Erwin in 1986 and has said that he taught her that true love doesn't require the dimming of her light. So here's what Tina had to say years later about leaving Ike. I was afraid, but sometimes you've got to let everything go. Purge yourself. I did that. I had nothing, but I had my freedom. My message here is if you are unhappy with anything, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your job, your boss, your car, whatever is bringing you down, get rid of it because you'll find that when you're free, your true creativity, your true self comes out. And that is the story of Tina Turner's journey with abuse. Of course, we all know what happens after she continued to thrive and thrive and is now a living legend. Ike Turner died in 2007 of a cocaine overdose. Tina had had no contact with him for 35 years. She did not attend his funeral and the boys inherited his estate. She later said, I don't know if I could ever forgive all that Ike ever did to me, but Ike's dead, so we don't have to worry about him. So that was this month's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I know it was a long one this time, but I believe it to be one of the most inspiring stories that I've ever heard. And I certainly related to a lot of Tina's journey. Um, Also, after watching this episode, um, I watched the... Tina documentary on HBO Max and um, especially after reading the book that I used to study and research this episode um, and reading all the hardships she went through I just found the documentary so emotional um, especially the last five minutes in particular if you watch it you will understand what I mean and I definitely think you should check it out I left a link in the bio as always um, she is just a true legend and a true inspiration Um, So once again, please, please, please give the show a rating. Any ratings, um, any shares, anything like that helps me out so much. And, you know, by sharing it, you just never know who of your friends may need to hear the information that I talk about here. Thank you for all of the support. Um, If you need any help, my socials are always open. IPV and me or Mandagogs. And if you need any further help, please contact the hotline.org or call 800-799-7233. That's 800-799-7233. More information is available in the show bio and on my social media channels. Until next time, folks. Take care.